the presence of the Lord is in this place. We acknowledge you this morning, God. We lift your name. We lift your voice. We welcome you in this place. You are here, God. We acknowledge that, and we welcome more of you in your will and your way. And as we open your word, as you have been speaking through our pastor, God, we just welcome your word this morning. We eat of the bread of life. We eat of your word, God. We welcome you into this place. We're thankful for your word. Speak, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. I say this legitimately and mean, and I have so enjoyed this series that our pastor has been in. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Thank you, pastor. It says this, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, in the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. We're going to jump over to chapter 37 of Exodus, verses 1 through 9. And Bezalel made the ark of Shittim wood. Two cubits and a half was the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth of it, and a cubit and a half the height of it. And he overlaid it with pure gold, within and without, and made a crown of gold to it round about. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set by the four corners of it, even two rings upon the one side of it and two rings upon the other side of it. And he made staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the staves into the rings by the side of the ark to bear the ark. And he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was the length thereof, and one cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And he made two cherubims of gold beaten out of one piece, made he them on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the end of on the end on this side and another cherub on the other end on that side out of the mercy seat made he the cherubims on the two ends thereof and the cherubims spread out their wings on high and covered with their wings over the mercy seat with their faces one to another even to the mercy seat word were the faces of the cherubims once again lord we acknowledge you we welcome you we pray liberty and power in this house through our pastor in jesus name amen Amen. You may be seated this morning. Good to see this great congregation out during the summer months like this and vacations taking place. We took a little trip ourselves this last week for a few days to God to get away, and we, uh, we're back in the saddle again. I can't hardly wait to preach. Amen. But we're, we're good to see everybody here. This morning we're going to wrap up our, our finish, our series on the furnishings of the tabernacle. It's went a little longer than what I expected. I mean, I knew it could go on and on and on and on and on, but I didn't expect to get into it that way. But the more I dig, the more, and, and I, I just had to stop because I said, Lord, if I don't stop this thing, we're going to be here forever. But this is our eighth sermon, and we're going to deal with the chamber called the Holy of Holies and the piece of furniture that's in it. And we know what piece of furniture is there. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And before we start, let me say that there's no way that there's any way possible that I'm going to meet, uh, preach everything symbolic about this room or about the ark. I had to just find what the Lord was speaking to me and then try to convey what he wants me to speak to you. My goal is only to preach the things that the Holy Spirit's revealed to me. So what we're going to do, we're going to dive right into the word of God here this morning. And I want those to have an ear to hear what the spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. And I truly believe that this message here is going to bring revival. Not because I'm preaching, but because of the manner in which God had given 
given me and what he's been speaking over my life, what he's been speaking over this church. It's one of the most important messages that there is. It's not good enough that we just hear the word, but we gotta become a doer of the word. We gotta take this word and make it applicable to our lives. Now, God's speaking to you here today, not because it's Kent Miller preaching, but it's the word of God, and the word of God is speaking to each and every one of God speaks to his word. We're always saying, well, we want God to speak to us. He is speaking to us. He's speaking to every one of us. This is a serious sermon, so let's really pay attention to it, and let's listen to what the Spirit of the Lord is commissioning and what he is trying to get this church to get involved in. The Holy of Holies was the most inner chamber in the wilderness tabernacle, as we know. Matter of fact, it was a room so sacred that only one person can enter in, which was the high priest of Israel, and he can only enter into it one day out of the entire year. This room was a perfect cube. It was 15 feet in each direction, and only one object was housed in this room, and it was the, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. There was no light inside of the chamber other than the glow from the presence of God. God's presence itself was what lightened that room. In the outer court, where you had the natural light, which was the sun, which we've talked about. In the holy place, you had the lampstand, symbolic of divine enlightenment. But here in the holies of holies, you had the glory of God as the light, symbolic of revelation. And let me tell you, there is a difference in being enlightened and having revelation. Enlightenment is getting a clarity on a clarity of perception, a perception, and a portion of knowledge on a certain thing. In other words, enlightenment is when you get a rhema word. It's when you get a word in season. It's when you get a now word. It's when something that was kind of, that kind of pops out at you and it's God speaking in the moment. But revelation is the revealing or the disclosing of something that was hid. It is the unveiling of the very manifestation of God. It is receiving full access into God's presence. Everywhere that you went, you only got bits and pieces and glimpses of the glory of God outside in the courtroom, though there was great manifestations. And even though you seen God from time to time and experienced God. In the holy place you experienced God. You experienced at the different works of disciplines that is revealed that we talked about. The table of showbread. You've seen him in, in the word. At the altar of incense. You've seen him in prayer. At the, at the candlestick. You've seen the illumination and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. But when you go behind the veil, there's nothing hidden. I want you to know there's nothing held back. There's nothing and hindering. There's nothing withheld. There's nothing covered up. There's nothing actually, there is nothing unaccessible. That it is the full glory of God. It is the Shabbat. It is God's glory that just lightens up the room. And let me just stop and say here, if there's one thing that God wants us to experience in the palace of prayer, is the very glory of God. It's where God's glory comes down to where you can't even minister. It's where you fall your face flat on the floor and you moan and you groan and you can't even even hardly look up. You can't even hardly lift up your head. It's when you feel the presence of God in such a way that's life-changing an event. Even though there is more of God than we can handle, and there's no way to totally understand or conceptualize who God is, yet this is why the Bible promises the believer so many precious promises. Do we understand the promises throughout the scripture that God has given us? Do we understand the kind of standing that we have with him? Do we understand the kind of relationship that 
our Heavenly Father wants with us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, the Bible says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. How many want grace and peace to be multiplied unto you? I tell you how it's done. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come into the glory of God and we receive the knowledge of who he is in the light of his power and the light of his glory and the light of his manifestation, we receive what we call grace and peace. It calms us. It erases away our fears. It takes away our anxieties. It takes away our care. I want to tell you, haven't you ever been in the presence of God when you got up and I want to tell you the weight of the world is completely off of you? Why? Because you experienced the glory of God. This is what God wants for the church. He, verse 3 says, according as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Every one of us want to live godly and we're always talking about the wars and we're always talking about the struggles and we're always talking about the fights and we're always talking about the hardships. But yet this, the scripture says, by God's divine power, he has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him that has called us unto glory and virtue. Hallelujah. That God is calling the church into a place of glory that hardships no longer affect them. Trials no longer affect them. They just hit them and run off like water off of a duck's back. They pay no attention to them. Why? Because you're walking in glory. You're walking in anointing. And you have the full assurance of faith that God is with you and that everything that happens to you happens for a reason. You don't fret. You don't frown. You don't cry. You don't murmur. You don't gripe. You don't complain. Why? Because you have received everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of God by his glory and virtue. And then he says in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceedingly and great and precious promises that by these that you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's talking about a life of complete victory. You're overcoming the things of the world. You are overcoming because you are a part of the, you are a part of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. That that which you, God had has imputed and then imparted it in your life to where you can have power over everything that ever challenges you or tries to take you out of the faith. Can you give God praise for that? Folks, that's good. Can I have an amen? <laughs> I like how the Passion Translation puts it. In them verses, he says, everything we could ever need for life and complete devotion to God has already been deposited in us by his divine power, for all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of the goodness of God. You know how I'm, I'm an overcomer? By his invitation for me to come to him and I have received his glory and his goodness, and he's lavished me through the, the great experience of knowing him. I know him. Paul said, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The Bible also promises us in Luke 12 and 32, fear not, little flock, say fear not. Look at somebody, tell them not to fear. He says, for it is your father's good pleasure, say good pleasure, 
It's God's good pleasure to give into you the kingdom. God wants to give you the very kingdom of God. Oh, hallelujah. This is why he also said in Matthew 16 and 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Not only do we have the kingdom, but we have the keys to operate in that kingdom. Those keys unlock doors. They, they open doors. They shut doors and lock doors. In other words, they set the, the it's time that the church set the perimeter instead of the devil setting the perimeter. We have power. We have the keys to the kingdom of Almighty God. They're keys of authority. Can I, oh my goodness. Are you listening to me? The church don't have to be defeated. Oh, Well, glory. Somebody shout with their pastor here this morning. Hallelujah. I love the promises in Psalms 84 and 11. No good thing with God withhold from them that walk up brightly. Some of you are in need. I want to tell you, God will withhold no good thing. God wants to pour out his blessings. James tells us, I quote this a lot because it's one of my favorite verses. James 1 and 17, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, where there's neither variableness nor shadow of turning. In other words, God can't even turn from wanting to do good to you. God loves you, those of you that are struggle. God's got everything that pertains to life and godliness. God wants to give every good thing to you. He'll withhold no good thing. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. God wants to bless his people. Listen to what Ephesians 3 verse 17 through 19 says. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love in that relationship may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height and to know, say no, and to know the love of Christ, which passive knowledge, that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. That God wants to take the church and fill it with his fullness. Oh, hallelujah. That's revelation, my friend. That's not just a glimpse into something by an enlightenment. It's not just a portion of something that you've come to learn. It's where God wants to come down and set his glory. There's a difference in God coming down and blessing the church than God coming down like he did when Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the people fell to their face to the pavement. And the ministers had to back off and could not even minister by the reason of the glory. Glory of God in the house. That's what God's wanting here this morning. Can you bring me my water, babe? <coughs> God wants to do something marvelous here. Thank you. Isn't she beautiful? She's a hottie. Man, she's pretty. I will get in trouble over that one. I like to stay in trouble. Thoughts are good because there's a making up time. Hallelujah. Can I have an amen? Woo, some of you know what I'm talking about. I got to watch out. I'm going to get off my sermon here today. Now, there's one New Testament principle that we all have to understand as believers. The fullness of God's glory that was revealed in the Holy of Holies behind the veil was revealed behind the veil of the flesh of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Did you hear what I said? That glory that was revealed behind the veil in the holies of holies is now revealed to us behind the veil of the flesh of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jesus was God in the flesh according to John 1 and 14. We know that. Jesus was in the express image of his Father according to Hebrews 1 and 3. He even said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John 14 and 9. He also said, me and my Father are one in John 10 and 30. 
So we understand when Jesus became flesh, he was the full manifestation of God on earth. Can I have an amen? He was God and he could be seen visibly with natural eyes. By the human eye, he could be seen. Jesus' flesh served as a veil, like the veil that was put over Moses' faith when he came down from off of the mountain after seeing God's glory because his face did shine as the sun, the Bible says. And Moses couldn't even see the full revelation of God because God said, no man can see my full glory and live. This is why that God had to put Moses in the cleft of a rock and make a shadow when he walked by and Moses was only able to see the back parts of God. And this is why that Jesus came so that we could see the full manifestation of God. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life, Jesus' works, Jesus' miracles, all testified of who God was. Can I have an amen? Matter of fact, Jesus said in John 10, verse 37 and 38, if I do not the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father's in me and I am in him. He said, if you can't believe me, be, believe for my very work's sake. He was God manifested to the world. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross and his veil of flesh was pierced, they poked a hole in his side with a spear. They put holes in his hands and his feet. They pierced his sacred brow with a crown of thorns. And everywhere that flesh was pierced, we see that blood came out. And he purchased our access to God by the shedding of his blood. And when he died, he gave up the ghost, the Bible says, and then that self-same hour, the Bible says that the temple veil to the holies of holies was rent from the top to bottom. It was torn. Jesus' torn flesh caused the temple veil to be torn in half, half to where we who were afar off can now come nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. We who once was alienated from God are now reconciled back to God in full harmony with him. We have access to God through the torn veil of the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now the glory that was hid in Christ, you and I have free access to that glory. This church has free access to the glory of God. How much of it do you want? Come on. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Christ and show you to Christ in all the full manner of who he is. And this is why the writer of Hebrews gives us an overwhelming invitation in Hebrews 10 and 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He tells us to draw near with a true heart with full assurance of faith. We don't have to feel condemned. We don't have to worry whether we're going to be rejected or not. We don't have to be fearful in coming to the presence of God. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 4 and 16, the Bible says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find our help in time of need. Old Israel had to sit outside of the camp and only one man could experience the glory of God. But now you and I have an invitation to come to that glory. What the first Adam lost for us through his sin, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, purchased our access back into fellowship with God. We now share in the glory of God because we now have access behind the veil into the very holy of holies for ourselves. You and I don't have to stand outside and wonder what God is like. We can march right in boldly into the throne of grace and you and I can obtain favor and mercy and help in our time of need. Hallelujah. Every one of us that's been born again, we become royal priesthood. 
We're the priest that can go behind the veil. The Bible tells us that in 1 Peter 2 and 9, but you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. What once was only allowed for one man to enter into God's glory once a year, and it was known as the annual day of atonement, or Yom, Yom Kippur is what it's called. Now we can have access into that same glory every single day. The high priest can only see it once a year. Everybody else couldn't even see it. But now you and I. Are you getting it? Huh? What a privilege. And yet we squander that right. Oh my. Don't you know how exciting it was and yet scary? The high priest walked in with fear because, man, I want to tell you something. He did something wrong. He was killed. But now there's no fear. You can come with full assurance of faith. Hallelujah. Because you have a high priest who's sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Can I have an amen? We now can have access into that same glory every day. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us, whosoever cometh to God, God will in no wise cast him out, according to John 6 and 37. You and I, because of Calvary, we have access to the very glory of God, God's presence. Just as the Old Testament high priest, you know, he had to go through this ceremonial cleansings and, and he had to go through the traditions and, in order to enter into that holy place. He would have to bathe. He would have to put on those chosen linen garments of the priesthood and he had to enter in the holy sanctuary with a censer of burning incense, which would produce a thick smoke shielding him from the glory of God. It acted as a veil. He would walk in with that incense and that smoke would get before him and it would try to block out or serve as a veil so it would protect him from the glory of God where the glory of God wouldn't kill him. That smoke of incense was protecting him. And even so, you and I have to go by the way of Calvary. And we have the blood of Christ applied to our lives, which serves as a veil like that of Egypt on the doorpost of the Israelites. When God sees the blood, he'll pass over us. Oh, hallelujah. It covers, it cleanses, it removes all sin so that we can experience the glory of God and live. If the priest wasn't fully sanctified, and if he didn't meet all the requirements of the ceremonial cleansings, then he would die in the presence of God. And in order to be blessed by God's presence, then you and I have to go by the way of Calvary. We have to be saved. We have to come by the way of repentance. Can I have an amen? There's no other way into the presence of God other than through the life of Jesus Christ. There is not multiple ways into the presence of God. One way. It's through a submission and a surrenderance to the lordship of Jesus Christ. John 14 and 6, he's the way, the truth, the life. No man come of the Father except through him. Notice, though, in the Holy of Holies, the only thing this chamber held was the Ark of the Covenant. There was no other furnishings. The Ark carried or, or housed the very presence of God in the Old Testament, just like Jesus howled, housed the, the presence of God in the New Testament. The ark brought blessing and protection and victory and, yes, even judgment in the Old Testament for Israel. What was it said about Jesus? Jesus went around doing good, healing all that was oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He'd done good things. Amen? As a matter of fact, the actual translation reveals that when you really study it out, I love this. It's the first time I caught it, and I've studied it for years. 
It was that it wasn't the priest that carried the ark. Everybody says, oh, it was too. They bore it up. They carried it. Only the priest could carry it. But yeah, even though that's true in the natural, they really didn't carry the ark. The ark carried them. It carried the carriers. Though the ark had physical weight, yet it was the ark that carried them instead of them carrying it. It caused the people to be borne up on wings of evil as they lifted up God. And can I tell you, if Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Can I have an amen? It was the ark that led them instead of them leading the ark. As a matter of fact, the ark transported the people instead of the people transporting the ark. It wasn't by their capabilities or their talents or their human strength or by their intelligence that there were all these victories. Their victories is there because of that ark. Can I have an amen? They understood this because they dare not leave the ark behind. Every time they did, they got the socks whipped off of them. Though the ark was weighty, yet it was glorious. Though it was a burden to carry, yet it was the burden carrier. Though it was weighty, it was not burdensome. It actually carried the burdens of Israel. The ark carried them into battle. It sheltered them from harm. It brought blessing. It brought victory. It done all kinds of things to saving of the people. The effort put forth to carry it could not compare to the undergirding strength and power that it gave. And let me tell you, can I remind us here this morning, without the presence of God going before us, we are nothing. The effort that we put forth through our spiritual disciplines to come into the presence of God, it's worth it. It may be hard sometimes to pray. It may be hard sometimes to be faithful to church. It may be hard sometimes to tithe. It may be hard. These things bring us into the presence of God. And though they may be a little bit weightiest, let me tell you, when you do it, all of a sudden, those things that once become weighty are not weighty anymore because that which you've given to is now giving back to you and it's lifting you up and instead of you carrying it, it's carrying you. Our victory is in the presence of God. It's not good enough for us just to learn of God intellectually, but we must experience God from time to time. It's not good enough to become intellectually smart through divine enlightenment alone where you just see portions of God and get a now word here and there and feel good about it. That's important. You gotta have those moments. But one must also experience his glory and have revelational moments because knowledge alone will puff up and cause arrogancy and self-righteous and will become like the Pharisees. Know everything but don't know him. Intellectually smart but spiritually stupid. We have to have life-changing moments where we have to experience his glory. We have to have life-shaking experiences we have to be blown away or overwhelmed at times and see God beyond the scope of our own comprehension. Or we build these monuments that we think that we're so righteous when in reality we've not even skimmed the surface of who he is. Can I have an amen? amen. If we're not careful, we can become as straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. As the presence of God that was in the ark actually carried the people, yet now in the New Testament, it is Christ that's supposed to be carrying his church. This salvation's up to you and me. I quit right now. I can't do it. I can't work it out. I can't match up. I can't ever hit the plateau. That I, Come on, somebody. If it's all up to me, I'm in trouble. 
And you are too. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 4, and we don't even pay attention to it. We say he was wounded for our transgressions. We thank God for forgiveness and we get all excited about that. And then we find this forgiveness and we still like, still live, still like, we still live like refugees in, in the kingdom of God. We live beneath divine privilege. Why? Because verse 4 says, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we didn't esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You know what the Bible just says? Everything that causes grief and sorrow and fear and anxiety, Jesus has already bore that up for you. You don't have to experience those things. Why do we do it then? Because, I'll get to that. First Peter 5 and 7 says, casting all, say all, all. your care upon him because he cares for you. Listen to what Philippians 4 and 6 says. And Paul exhorts us as believers to do this. He says, be careful for nothing. Be anxious about nothing. And anxiety is one of the number one problems in the church world today. We're strung out on medicine, and, and I'm not against trying to get help from a doctor when we need it. But we don't have to be anxious about anything. Be careful for nothing, Paul says. But in all things, say in all things. Now that's a big scope. It means no matter what comes your way, you're not to be anxious. But Brother Miller, you don't understand. They just giving me the diagnosis of the C word, cancer. Don't be anxious. Well, it's easy for me to say I've not got that diagnosis. Sometimes we need help in that area. Come on. Be careful for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. He says, when these bad things come before you, don't be anxious about anything. Start praying about it. Start supplicating about it, and then thanking, and begin to praising, and begin to magnifying, and don't care, and don't fret. Put your hand, life into his hands, and then trust him. Trust him. That's what God's saying is. This is where care is forbidden because the cares of this life will choke the word and cause us to become unfruitful according to Mark 4, 19. Therefore, he exhorts us to put our faith into action by praying and supplicating and giving thanksgiving in verse six so that we won't faint and so that you and I can have the promise of verse seven. If we'll do verse six, be careful for nothing, but with all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our request be made known unto God. If we'll do that, then verse seven is our promise. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You and I can live in total peace. Jesus said, the peace I give unto you, not the world's peace to give out of thee, but the peace I give unto you that your joy might be full and that it might remain. It don't go away and come. It don't go away. You walk in divine comfort. You walk in divine peace. I am living beneath that right now. There's moments I got it and there's moments I don't, just like you and I, but I want to tell you, this sermon has encouraged me to make me understand that no matter what comes my way, no matter what happens to me, no matter what's going on, I can be careful about nothing because I can pray about it, I can petition God about it, I can supplicate, then I can thank him and I can praise him. I can roll my life over into his hands and then trust him for it and God promised me if I'll do that, the peace of God that passeth all understanding is going to keep me. It's going to keep my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. He's bore my sorrow. He's bore my grief. He's bore my anxiety. He's bore my fear. Woo! Man, I could run right now. Don't know how far, but I can run. 
Marks actually said that the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches is nothing but a smokescreen and ain't even worthy of the attention of a believer. That's what he says more or less. When you see it come, don't even pay attention to it. It's a smokescreen to try to get your eyes off of your promise. When we're burdened down with care, we're not walking in divine authority. We're not walking in divine anointing when we're burdened down. But most of the time, the church is wallowing in problems. Somehow we glorify them sometimes. We think, well, the more problems I go through, that means the more the devil's fighting me. Well, the devil's in fight, but I'm not to wall around in my pity. Come on, somebody. If we're walking around burdened with the cares of life, then we're not walking in the divine authority, nor the anointing, but we're walking in the flesh. Come on, I'm telling you the truth. God wants the peace of God to rule us by making everything a matter of prayer and then trusting him with that. He wants us to roll all of our burdens upon him because he cares for us. He's our burden bearer. He's the lifter up of our heads. He's the anchor of our soul. He's our hope. Jesus has already bore that hurt, that pain, that injustice, that problem, that situation, that disappointment, that rejection that you all feel. He's done bore it. It's his. He's carrying it for you if you allow him. Jesus has already bore everything that you will ever face. There's no room for griping and complaining and murmuring and doubt and fear and worry, worry and, and, and anxiety and moaning and groaning and fighting and fussing. But that's what we spend most of our time doing. We moan, we groan, we gripe, we ask, we wonder. Come on, our minds go crazy. We must let Christ carry us. The ark carried the children of Israel. So much of the time we think that the ark represents Christ. It doesn't. It can in some symbolic ways, but it is, the, it is his presence in the ark that represents Christ. It's that power that resides inside that ark. That represents Christ. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2, and he reveals to us that you and I are the ark of the covenant. He says, you are an epistle manifestation of God known and read of all men. Did you hear that? He says that you and I are literally the epistle. We are what reveals and manifests the presence of God. We carry the presence of God. As the ark housed the pot of manna, even so we house the bread of life, Jesus Christ. As the ark housed the engraved tablets of the Ten Commandments that was brought down off of Mount Sinai by Moses, even so we have the Ten Commandments wrote not on stone and without pen or ink by the Spirit of God upon the fleshly tables of our heart. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. And as the ark housed Aaron's rod that budded, even so every single one of us has a life-giving anointing inside of us. We can bring life to dead things. An old dead rod butted when Aaron got a hold of it because of an anointing from God. And we can take dead things and make them come alive again by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This Oh, I'm about to preach. Huh? First John 2 and 20 says, but you have an unction and anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. The Bible looks at you as a believer and says, you have unction, you have anointing. Amen. Chuck Richardson, you're anointed. Bill Marvin, you're anointed. Louise, you're anointed. Brother Bogus, you're anointed. 
Donna, you're anointed. I don't know about Gary. <laughs> Gary's anointed. Can I have an amen? The ark represents the life of every born-again believer in this building. You're an ark of the covenant. You're the only promise that the world has because how can they hear without a preacher? How can they know eternal life without a messenger, without a prophet, a pastor, an evangelist, the fivefold ministry of God? How can they know? We are to be God's presence carrier. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm about to preach. Everywhere we go, we are to take the anointing that breaks the yoke and the bondage of sin and we're to bring victory to people. That's our job. That's our commission. That's why we're saved. Everything in the holies of holies was redemptive in nature. Have you noticed that? It was where the high priest put the blood upon the mercy seat on the day of atonement that was upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And I am not even going to go there because the more I study, the more that sermon gets. I was going to talk about the mercy seat, how it was beaten out, and how, all that symbolic, how they had the, the cherubims on each side of it with their wings over. It ties into verse 91 when it talks about abiding under the wings of the shadow of Almighty. It means that you and I can abide on that mercy seat under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. We can live under mercy. But that high priest would go in and put the blood upon that mercy seat that one time of the year. This saved the whole nation. The whole nation of Israel would sit outside of that place and wonder, is everything going all right? They were trembling. They were shaking. Because all of their salvation for a year, their forgiveness, their atonement, was placed upon one man doing everything right in that holy of holies. But I don't have to fear because my salvation was also placed upon one man. The man Christ Jesus. He wasn't an ordinary man. He was the son of the living God. Oh, hallelujah. There was no fault found in him. He was holy, pure, undefiled, separated from sinners. All of my trust is on that one man, Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Woo! It's where the high priest would put that blood there. This priest had to ceremony cleanse themselves, as we said earlier. He had to bathe. He had to wash. He had to put on the certain clothes. He had to cover himself with the smokes of that incense. And you dare not try to go into the presence of God without that incense, which is prayer. Because the altar of incense, what it represents, the prayers of the saints. You can't get God's attention any other way, no matter how bad you try. You can't connive. You can't manipulate. You can't manufacture the presence of God. Folks, if you want the presence of God, you've got to learn the art and the discipline and the, and the discipline of prayer. It's so vitally important. Woven in the hem of the garments of the priest, priest uh, 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 garment was bells. And these bells was a sign of the God accepting the sacrifice of the people and redemption was provided for a year. If the priest was not perfectly sanctified and, the, and, the, and he didn't present the blood right, he would die. He would be killed. They tied ropes around this priest to where they could pull him out because no one could go in and get him unless they would die. And they had to get another high priest to go in and try to fulfill that obligation. 
if the bell stopped ringing on the garment of the priest, they knew something went wrong. And he had died, and their redemption was denied. Here they were, sitting outside in that courtyard, listening. And as that priest would walk, and that, and that garment would, would move, they would hear them bells ringing. Cling, ling, ling, ling. Cling, ling, ling. And they'd sit there, and that, that, that sound was a music to their ears. Oh, he's still alive. There's still hope. My redemption is being fulfilled. But when those bells stop, he just paused for a minute. Don't you know their hearts? Mm. And then the bells would start ringing again. Whew. Oh, my. It's such an intense moment. And all that intensity and that wonder is all vanished away by our high priest, Jesus Christ. We don't have the worry of all of that. Come on, somebody. If those bells stopped ringing, they knew that their redemption was accepted. If they kept ringing, they knew it was accepted. Jesus promised his disciples that if he would depart, he would send the Holy Spirit to comfort us. And remember Jesus said to Mary Magdalene when he, on the first day of the resurrection morning, when she seen him, he said, don't touch me. I've not yet been to my Father and been glorified as of yet. In other words, Jesus had not yet applied the blood upon the mercy seat in heaven so he could not allow her to touch him because it would defile him with that human touch. After he was glorified, somewhere between that process, you remember what did he say to Thomas? Touch me. Feel me. No, touch the hose in my hand. Touch the hose in my side. Look at the pierced mouth. Come on, Thomas, touch me, and you'll know it's me. Now we can touch him with the feeling of our infirmities because he's been glorified on our behalf. He's our advocate. He's our high priest. We can preach there forever. However, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them clothed in tongues as a fire and it set upon each of them. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. God promised in Scripture that he would speak to these people in unknown tongues to the prophet Isaiah. And he was known as the prophet of redemption. He's saying when redemption comes, after redemption, you'll hear these people have stammering lips in another tongues. What he said in Isaiah 28 and 11. So when those tongues fell on the day of Pentecost, it was a sign like those bells of our redemption. And it was saying our redemption has been accepted. The noise has been heard. Jesus made it to the throne of glory. And what it was saying was, is I've made it. Redemption's done. It's full. Because I promised you that if I depart, I will send the Father. The, I will pray to the Father, and the Father will send you another comforter. He, in other words, he's saying, I made it to heaven. I've had my prayer time. God has honored my prayer. Your redemption is sealed. The blood has been applied in heaven's mercy seat. That's the witness of it. Now we become those earthen vessels full of the power of God that 2 Corinthians 4 and 7 speaks of. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're earthen treasures. We are the shittim wood overlaid with gold. That's what we are. We are the shittim wood of the ark and, and we are housed, when we house the very presence of God because he's purified us and redeemed us. And notice that the ark had no feet. It was the only furnishing that didn't have any feet it sat directly on the ground. Every other piece of furniture in, that tab in the tabernacle had feet or had legs that it stood upon. And yet other translations, when I read them, I, got, I, I noticed something 
that the King James did not put in it, so I went and researched it. In verse three, I think it is of our text, it mentions about how the ark set upon the ground. It didn't have no feet, it had corners. But it didn't have no feet, it didn't have no legs. But when you read other translations, they'll say, and they took the rings and fastened it to the legs of the ark, or they fastened it to the feet of the ark. Well, there was no legs, and there was no feet. When you go back to the literal Hebrew language, there was no legs on that ark. This means that the ark could not stand by itself, but only by the presence of God that was within that ark. You and I cannot stand by ourselves. And also it represents God stands alone. He don't need no one to hold him up. Whether you like it or whether you don't, God don't need you. He just wants you. Amen. Rings were fastened to each of its four corners. And gold plated wood gold plated wooden poles were put through them to carry it. You know the rings were there on each corner, gold rings. They take those wooden poles overlaid with gold and they would put them in there and they would carry it. But there's something strange about these poles other than the other poles that was to carry the other uh, furnishings. These poles were never to be removed, but they were to stay in the rings constantly. This was to say that the ark had to always be ready. It always had to be prepared. It always had to stand to attention. It could not be lethargic. It could not be lukewarm. It could not be cold. It could not be indifferent but it had to be alert at all times. It had to be ready and for the command of God. When God says it's time to move, you gotta move. And that's why he tells us that the lukewarm church will be spewed out of his mouth. There's no, we gotta be ready at all times. Jesus said, be ye ready for you need to know the day or the hour when the Lord comes. You and I gotta be constantly alert. We cannot get lethargic in our experience with God. We can't get cold. We can't get indifferent. We can't get implacent. Come on, somebody. We can't get out of our place. These poles had to be there at all times. The last and the most fascinating thing about the ark was found in the writings of the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is a writings and teachings and traditions that the fathers actually taught and passed down to their children. It is actually what you and I would call, it's not really maybe defined as this, but it's what you and I would call in the English language commentaries of the earthly forefathers passing down their teachings to their future generations. And a matter of fact, there was a time that it was literally forbidden for the Israelites to write down the actual writings of the Torah itself because this applied only for the actual uh, transmitting it through writings. They did not want it to continually be copied because every time you do that, there's a chance that it will be flawed. So they would not allow that to happen. But however, the Israelites could write it down for personal use. And that's what this thing called the Talmud is. It's where they wrote these things down, made notes, and these notes have been found and put in into a commentary sense to where you and I can find out what went on way back there with the, children's, the children of Israel and their teachings and traditions. In the Talmud, it is written that the space occupied by the ark and the Holy of Holies did not take up space. Now, some of you are looking at me like I look. Well, what in the world does that mean? The Holy of Holies of the tabernacle was 10 cubits wide, approximately 15 feet, and it was 10 cubits long. So it was a perfect cube of 15 foot wide and 15 foot long. However, they say if you would measure from the wall to the edge of the Ark of the Covenant, it was five cubits. 
And if you measured from the opposite wall to the edge of the ark, it was five cubics. You add the two measures together and you get 10 cubics, which was the exact width of that room. However, the ark itself was two and a half cubics long. It was also one and a half cubics wide and one and a half cubics high. However, they say that if you would take that ark of the covenant out of the room and measure the full length of that room, it would be exactly 10 cubics. If you would take the ark of the covenant, put it back in the center of the room, and if you would go from this corner of the wall over to the edge of the ark, it's five cubics. Skip the ark, go from the corner of this ark to the other wall, it's five cubics. The two and a half cubics length of the Ark of the Covenant was lost. This paradox, one writer, one rabbi said, this paradox is entirely miraculous within itself. It is something that you cannot even wrap your minds around, he said. The, both, the Ark both taking up space but yet not taking up space. Naturally, it was two and a half cubits long. It took up space. You could measure it. It took up space, but but place it in the room and supernaturally it didn't take up space. Let me just stop right here and say God is a God of the natural and God's a God of the supernatural. Everybody says these supernatural things has gone away. That is not true. What is the symbolics to all of this? First of all, God is not controlled by anything. Nothing bears him up and he stands alone. God is not limited by boundaries or by space. He's not hindered by circumstance, nor is he controlled by powers. He can defy laws. He can break rules. He can stop the unstoppable. He can do whatever, whenever, however he wants because he's God. And he don't have to ask permission from anybody. All power in heaven and earth is given unto him. He can defy logic. He can do the impossible because nothing is impossible with God. However, these things did not happen in the early life of the children of Israel without the ark. This tells me that as a body of believers, we are not here just taking up space. We're here to tear down strongholds. We're here to push down walls. We're here to overcome giants. We're here to do the impossible because nothing is impossible to them that believe. We're here to tread upon serpents. We're here to stop the mouths of lions. How many's with me here this morning? We're here to make havoc upon the kingdom of darkness. We're here to punch holes in the darkness. We're here to overcome principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. We're here to defeat our enemies. We're here to stop the work of the devil. We're here to cast out demons. We're here to heal the sick. We're here to build up the kingdom of God. We're not just taking up space. We're not just here just as another fixture. We're instruments of faith. And we're not just another ordinary piece of furniture. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we're not just a pretty ornament to look at. We are the anointing of God. Can I have an amen? We have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. We're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We're here to roll back the stones and raise the dead. We're here to open the blinded eyes and cause them to see. We're here to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We are the ark of the covenant. Our covenant is with Jesus Christ and the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead. If he dwells in us, then he shall quicken our mortal bodies. 
Somebody stand to your feet and give him praise. Somebody says, when are you going to get done? When I get ready. We house the very presence of God. If need be, he will defy natural laws for us. We're not bound by physics. We're not controlled by science. And neither are we confined to common sense. If you don't believe me, God done things that Blow your mind away. Well, it wasn't even common sense to do stuff like that. Come on, somebody. Spitting the ground, make mud, slapping the man's eyes. Come on, that's craziness. If need be, he will stop the moon, stop the sun, and give us time needed to whip our enemies. If need be, he will split the Red Sea. He'll cause manna to fall out of the sky. He'll cause quail to come in in the evening time. If need be, he will close the mouths of lion like he did for Daniel. If need be, he will speak to us through a rooster like he did to Peter or maybe through a donkey like he did to Bell or maybe he'll just do a handwriting on the wall like he did to Nebuchadnezzar. If need be, he will feed 5,000 people, not counting women and children with two small uh, fishes and, and uh, with five loaves of bread and two small fishes. If need be, he will cause water to come out of a rock. If need be, he'll cause you and I to walk on water. If need be, he'll, he'll let us cast a shadow that will heal people. If need be, he will anoint our handkerchiefs and we'll place them under the people's beds and they'll come alive again. If need be, he'll send angels on our behalf. We're here to tear down prison walls that hold people captive, my friend. We're here to break chains that hold people in bondage. We're here to set people free. We're here to move mountains. We're here to expose darkness. We're here to bring truth and destroy lies and deception. We help. We're here to be the ark of God and show forth mercy to the unmerciful world if we will be redemptive in nature nothing absolutely nothing can stop us if we'll be about our father's business and we'll get out and start proclaiming and declaring and decreeing the word of God in this generation we'll bring revival to America and then nothing shall stop us we will defy the odds we will overcome the multitudes we will win against the most powerful forces on earth Moses and the children of Israel, did you know what? They defied the most, the most powerful army on the face of the earth. Pharaoh and, and the Egyptian army was the most powerful force on earth. And Moses and the children of Israel overcome them, and they died in the, in the Red Sea. Nothing, absolutely nothing can beat us, stop us, because we are a force to reckon with. Judges can't stop us. Juries can't stop us. I want you to know governments can't stop us. Trials can't stop us. Persecution can't stop us. Devils can't stop us. Angels can't stop us. Things on earth can't stop us. Things under the earth can't stop us. I, I want you to know absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the body of Christ, the blood-bought children of God. We are his chosen we hear, we hear the words of Jesus when he said, Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Every one of us needs to start not only declaring victory, speaking victory, talking victory, but we need to live victory. It's ours. God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Start testing him and you'll end up testifying of him. <laughs> Start believing him and he will end up, you will end up experiencing him. 
though we are earthen vessels, yet inside of us is the power of God. Now it's time for every one of us to release it. Release it. Release the power of God inside of you. Start witnessing, I dare you. Start actively involved getting in soul winning, I dare you. Start declaring, start decreeing, start talking to your neighbors, your friends. We do it when we have a little sometimes seminar or maybe a, a series on soul winning. We'll do it for three or four weeks and then we just quit. And yet we are the art that passes through the land to bring victory to people. Amen. God began to work in me this week just in prayer time, just in my personal prayer time. I was on vacation and I'd be meditating at different times, praying over things. And we seen God move two or three mountains while we were on vacation just by simply praying and believing. God's on the move. And I release the authority and the anointing of the Holy Spirit here today. And I'm here to tell you I'm going to lay hands on people and things are going to happen. Our staff's going to lay, I want all, my, all of my staff and my elders and my, and my council members to line up up here. Get up here fast. Everybody in the staff, everybody in the elders, everybody in, in the council. We're going to believe that we're fixing to turn this world upside down by the power of God that's inside of us. Now listen to this scripture. We quote it wrong all the time. God can do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we're even able to ask or think. How many believe that? All right, we're, what we do is we go before God and we ask and I say, God, move. You promise you can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we ask or believe. But this is the rest verse. By the power that worketh mightily in us. We're coherence, co-laborers together with God. We are the ark of God. You and I are the ark of God. We're the carriers. We house the presence of God as Jesus housed God in the flesh. So do we. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want you to stand with me this morning. I want everybody that wants a touch of God or everybody that's hungry that's gonna make a commitment, I'm gonna get about my father's business and we're gonna win the, if we don't get out and evangelize this world, America is gone. We're the only hope. But if we'll do our part, hell can't rob America of her promise. The only hope of America is the church activating their faith and being a voice, being an ark, being a carrier of the presence of God. And if you want to be a, a carrier of the presence of God, I want you to come up here and I want you to let these people anoint you with oil and pray over you.